IndieCast is presented by Uproxx's Indie Mixtape. Hello everyone and welcome to IndieCast. This is our first show, so thank you for joining us. Every week on this show we will be talking about the biggest indie news of the week, reviewing albums, hashing out trends, and occasionally, like in this episode, talking about some of the most important indie albums of the past. My name is Stephen Hyden, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host, Ian Cohen. Ian, how are you? I'm doing great. And um, I think maybe the question that we need to answer before we move any further is that um, I feel like we argue about this stuff on Twitter, so why not record it for a change? (laughs) I mean... Exactly. Yeah. I, I think I, I think we're giving the people what we want. You know, there's only so much you can get into like 280. And um, yeah, I think that this is just a, an opportunity for us to, um, you know, give the people what they want in a more drawn out uh, conversational sort of way. So I'm stoked for it. Well, actually, and of course, too, like we're, we're two longtime music critics in a dying yeah. industry. We have to find a way to survive. To, to feed ourselves. So why not get in on the podcast Gold Rush? This get is some what of, hustle sounds like. <laughs> <laughs> the podcast, millions of dollars will be raining upon us. As, Watch out, Joe Rogan. Exactly. That's right. Joe Rogan, he's not dispensing indie rock opinions. I, this not is a yet. market that's <laughs> wide open uh, to, be, uh, to be exploited by, by people. So uh, before we get into uh, our episode today, I think we should maybe introduce ourselves for those who may not know who, who we are. My name is Stephen Hyden. I've uh, been a music critic for many years. I've written for places like the AV Club, Grantland, New York Times Magazine. I'm currently the cultural critic at Uproxx. And... Uh, and I host a lot of podcasts. So, you know, if you're not sick of my opinions yet, hopefully you will not be sick of my opinions by the end of this episode. Ian, what are you doing here? What are your qualifications? <laughs> um, well, uh, I've been doing this uh, music critic thing probably since around 2005. been getting paid for it for a shorter amount of time. Uh, but in my, I guess, 12 years running, I've been writing for Pitchfork, um, Spin, Stereo Gum, uh, Grantland, The Ringer. I mean, a dozens probably uh, websites that popped up, had a good amount of venture capital into it, and then uh, folded in about a year, year and a half. So I think that almost gives me more experience to talk about uh, indie rock as it played out over the span of the 21st century because I mean what is indie but you know just a bunch of trends that kind of come go and then 10 years later you look back on it it's like oh yeah I remember you know redacted website <laughs> right or redacted genre or redacted, yeah redacted. <laughs> you know group of bands well that expertise is going to come in handy with today's episode because as I said earlier you know normally on this show we're going to be talking about the latest news in indie rock reviewing new albums and all that sorts of things. But for our first episode, we're going to be looking back 10 years at one of the biggest indie rock albums of the early 21st century, which is The Suburbs by Arcade Fire. The album turns 10 years old on August 2nd. You know, and before we talk about this record, it doesn't seem like 10 years have passed since this record came out. Although in a way, the world is so different now than it was then. But in a, I don't know if I'm just older now. Things don't seem to age as quickly as they once did. 
Um, but yeah, this anniversary snuck up on me a little bit. It feels 10 years old and it also feels 40 years old. Like I think that there's anytime there's an anniversary happening, like it, there, time just has such a weird function in this realm because like something that came out in 2015 can feel like it happened an eternity ago. Whereas something like Kid A, uh, which came out 20 years ago, has been just in the lexicon for so long that it doesn't feel quite that old. And I think the suburbs uh, fall somewhere in between. Like, my life is very different than it was 10 years ago. And yet, something like this has such an impact and casts such a long shadow over everything that's come since that it does not quite feel like it's aged. But then again, the whole thing is about, you know, aging and, you know, moving into into adulthood and parenting and all that such stuff. So I think it was it was waiting for people like you and I to look back on it 10 years from now. It was like an inherently nostalgic thing. So, yeah, absolutely. Well, let's give a little background on the record before we dive into our thoughts about it. As I said, this record came out on August 2nd, 2010. It debuted at number one on the U.S. album charts as well as in the U.K., uh, it went on to win the Grammy for Best Album of the Year in, two, in 2011. And uh, this record really solidified Arcade Fire's status as an arena rock band. Of course, they had been building their status through their first two records, tw- uh, 2004's Funeral and 20- 2007's Neon Bible. Uh, but with the suburbs, it really seemed like this was going to become the biggest band in the world. And... It's funny looking back on it because I remember like when they won the Grammy thinking that, oh, this is going to mean something momentous for indie rock. This is the moment where Nirvana tops the charts with Nevermind and changes the culture. You know, Arcade Fire now, they're, they are poised to do the same thing in the 2010s. This will be the decade of indie rock. And hmm. of course, that did not happen at all. <laughs> like, <laughs> what the suburbs now appears to be in retrospect is the peak moment of aughts era indie rock, the culmination of like all of the trends and the wave that we saw in popularity for indie bands in that decade. And after that, it seems like the wave crashed, not just for Arcade Fire, but for indie rock in general. Uh, That's how I see it anyway. I'm curious to talk about that with you as we get into this episode. But before we talk about that, I really want to talk to you about this because you actually reviewed the suburbs for Pitchfork back in, mm-hmm. in 2010. And I'm just curious, like, what do you remember about that record's release and, and writing about it at that time? Uh, I think the, in order to kind of understand where I was coming from while, you know, going into the suburbs, like every bit of mythology surrounding funeral, like I was all about it. Like, I mean, I had to wait a few days before like buying it at the record store because the Pitchfork review for funeral meant it sold out everywhere. And, I was listening to it on my disc man during power outages. I, I mean, it like whatever corny thing people say about funeral, I embodied it. And so, you know, Neon Bible, we, it was something of a disappointment for me. It just couldn't be the greatest album of all time. And so when I went to the suburbs, I mean, I didn't quite know what to expect. Like I was kind of ready for arcade, like, okay, arcade fires, like, I thought it would be like The Strokes, you know, or like Interpol, like the third album where they just kind of, I don't know, just kind of fade off into the distance. But um, and none of the singles really kind of stuck with me. I'm like a very album oriented person. But um, I mean, 
I, I think one of the themes that we'll probably end up tackling a lot here is like when you write about an album, it gives you a far different experience than if you're just like an observer of the record. And you know, the more I got into it, um, the more I started to sense it's like themes of like nostalgia and just like being kind of stuck because the, the suburbs was it came out at a time where I was like very much in a position to hear it. Like I hated my job. Uh, was in a relationship that was just like not working and uh, thinking about, you know, what it might have been like to be like back in, you know, the suburbs of Philadelphia as opposed to like the suburbs of Houston. And it just in a lot of ways, I kind of acknowledge it's like kind of a dumb record (laughs) in the sense that like Arcade Fire is kind of like very heavy handed and they oversimplify things. I mean, but it it just hit. And to this day, when I hear it, it's like it, it just hit me in a very vulnerable spot. Um, and I think that's very reflective, very much reflected in the album review itself that I wrote where you can kind of sense I'm like being very diaristic about it all. <laughs> but nonetheless, I mean, like I, what I remember is that that was like one of the first reviews I wrote that like people who weren't like very uh, much ensconced in that world, like paid attention. It's like, whoa, you, you reviewed or like, that was like a big deal. So that that was kind of cool, but yeah, the record just meant a lot to me in a way that um, it, it's a little embarrassing in retrospect. But you know, it, it obviously resonated with a lot of people who felt the same way. Yeah, I mean, I remember at the time feeling very mixed on Arcade Fire, and in a way, mm-hmm. I I still am mixed on them. I remember when Funeral came out, that record had a lot of hype. As you mentioned, the Pitchfork review had a lot to do with it. I think they gave it a nine point five. 9.7. 9.7. I would say the most impactful album review of the 21st century as far as like changing the tra- and changing the trajectory of a band. And I right. think that that ties into a lot of why we consider this to be the culmination of indie as opposed to like a classic rock band making a Grammy, you know? Right. I mean, yeah, the, the I guess the status that we bestow on Arcade Fire and that review in particular is tied in with the idea of Arcade Fire being a band who seemingly came out of nowhere and this one review comes out and it seemed like overnight they became like a huge band after that. Yeah. And, and I think that it simplified a little bit. I don't know if it was entirely because of that review, but it had a lot to do with that review. And I know for me personally, that's the first time I ever heard of Arcade Fire was reading it. Yeah. I, I bought it on Pitchfork. And I think at the time, you know, it, it's kind of hard now to imagine like any one outlet having that kind of power just because, Media in general <laughs> is so spread out. Um, it's so spread out like the suburbs, if you will, uh, right now. But um, my feeling on Arcade Fire then was that this was a band with with incredible peaks. You know, they could have very stirring songs that uh, just blew you away the first time you heard them, like Wake Up being a song like that, for instance. And then they had songs where you could tell that they were trying to blow you away and it just fell way short and it ended up being almost obnoxiously dumb as you said before <laughs> and i and to me like funeral and more so neon bible have moments where both things are true there's incredible songs on some on those records and there's some real stinkers on those records and what struck me revisiting the suburbs for this episode is that i feel like in terms of arcade fire this was an album where I feel like they were a little more nuanced than they were on the first two records. There are moments on this record that are relatively subdued that mm-hmm. 
act as sort of like a contrast point with like the bigger peaks that exist on the record. Whereas I feel like on the first two records, it's really like a one note experience. Um, and I think that's what draws me to the suburbs. Now I should say that like, again, I, I mean that relatively speaking. I mean, this is still by any other standard, a very bombastic record. And it, it, listening to it again, it kind of reminded me a little of the wall, the Pink Floyd record. Uh, just in terms of like the recurring musical motifs, I think the suburbs is consciously constructed as like a classic rock concept record. Um, and just thematically, it reminds me a lot of the records that you would hear classic rock bands make in the seventies about teenage alienation and rebelling against this idea of like corporate interest intruding on your life or the government intruding on your life and, and robbing you of your individuality. You know, that's something that is very classic rock. And it's something that's also very, I think, particular to like aughts era indie that when we look back on it 10 years later, like you don't really see stuff like that in the music culture as prominently, you know, as it was then. And it maybe ties that album to its era a lot. Um, like, like, like when you revisit the record, like, what do you think of it now? I think that's exactly what you said. Uh, you know, the first two albums were very heavy handed in their own ways. Like every single song on those were a matter of life and death. And I think that's to a lesser extent on the suburbs. Now you can't hear songs like modern man or ready to start as being particularly nuanced. I mean, they, uh, arcade fire does not operate with nuanced lyricism, particularly about the state of the world. But, um, yeah, that's what works for those two songs in particular. And uh, and yet when I when I look back on the suburbs, you know, when I listen to it as a whole, uh, all 60 minutes of it, what stands out to me 10 years later is that there are quite a few songs that I've forgotten about, uh, you know, not bad songs by any means. But let's think of Deep Blue or the first Half Light or the first Sprawl. Um, these aren't songs that people will go to an arcade fire show in 2021 or 2022 and think, Oh, I cannot believe they didn't play deep blue. Um, but I think those really help out with establishing the, you know, for lack of a better term, suburban sprawl of the suburbs, you know, that they're not swinging for the fences for every single song. And, you know, some of these songs can just be kind of those aimless, drives around the suburbs that when Butler sings about, you know, there's, there's more room to breathe on here. Now, you know, granted, there are some songs that are actually bad on this one. Like I think of Rococo as an example of like a song that predicts everything that would go wrong for the band on everything. Now, Um, I think when Butler's heavy handedness works, when he talks about like emotions and their personal relationships, but as far as like cultural criticism, uh, he's just not very good at that. And Rococo is a much longer song than I remember as well. So always got to skip that one because it gets you right to Empty Room, which I think is one of the more underrated songs. Uh, and also one that kind of sounds like emo bands in 2020. So obviously I'm into that one. Uh, but what you said about, you know, class, Arcade Fires being classic rock, I think that's there. it's always difficult to think about arcade fire within the context of indie rock you know like what arcade fire mean to indie rock because even from the beginning 
they were, you know, they sounded like Modest Mouse. Funeral sounded like Bright Eyes. Funeral sounded like Neutral Milk Hotel. But they operated from a very right. classic rock, like we want the world, we want to play stadiums, we want to win Grammys uh, operating principle. Whereas, I mean, if we're talking about like the culmination of indie rock, I mean, if we if we recorded this episode last year, we would be talking about the 10-year anniversary of what was then seen as the culmination of indie rock with bands like Animal Collective and Grizzly Bear and Dirty Projectors and St. Vincent, all acts that came from this art rock or avant-garde beginnings and popularity came to them. It was the one time I would say there was a true merger between what could be seen as like Pitchfork or Gorilla vs. Bear or Stereo Gum and the greater critical uh, narrative. Um, you know, if you look at Paz and Job, basically the same across the board. But Arcade Fire, I think with with the suburbs, their classic rock, um, I guess what you could call their 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 desire to be classic rock really takes shape because uh, their ambitions are matched to what they, you know, they describe this album as Depeche Mode meets Neil Young. And, and there are aspects of that. But, you know, there's also a heck of a lot of U2. There's a heck of a lot of Bruce Springsteen. Um, all of these very broad populist um, ambitions that they had since the beginning, but now they finally had to sound to match. And, I think if we were looking for a indie rock record that could win a Grammy album of the year, not like alternative album of the year, this one is specifically engineered to do that because it has all those characteristics of, you know, bands that regularly get five stars in Rolling Stone, but they're a young band. So you can hear the suburbs as being their answer to the Joshua tree or, um, you know, their answer to darkness on the edge of town or whatever, you know, whatever works for those specific touchstones. I mean, it, it, I was thinking like when you were talking about all the classic rock influences that the suburbs had, you know, you're talking about YouTube, Bruce Springsteen, Neil Young, people like that. Back in the aughts, it wasn't outside the realm of conversation to talk about those artists being influential on major indie rock bands. Like there was that wave of bands around like the mid aughts or so or so that like we're proudly talking about Bruce Springsteen being like a core influence of what they were doing like whether it was Arcade Fire, The Hold Steady, The National, you know, bands like that that at that time were at the center of indie rock. And clearly that's not the the case anymore. I mean the, the bands that are still around from that time, you know, many of them have kind of graduated to this like legacy band status, but like no one talks about them at, as being at the vanguard of what indie music is. And and this idea of a pretty straight down the line rock band that has a stern look on their face and is strumming acoustic guitars and belting out these anthemic songs. I mean, to me, like the like the suburbs represents the end of that being like an indie archetype that was recognizable and uh, was critically lauded. You know, and I think the reason why I, I look at it as a culmination in a lot of ways is because as I said before, like when, I mean, I don't want to like put too much weight on a Grammy. I mean, the Grammys are obviously stupid and like I, I hate the Grammys. I don't like paying attention to them. But having said that, I do remember at the time when 
Arcade Fire won the album of the year. And then they ended up concluding the show. I think they played month of May after they won. There was a feeling among a lot of people that like, you know, this is, it was 20 years after Nevermind at that point, like when Nirvana broke through. And that old narrative of like the outsider band that, infiltrates the mainstream and takes it over and then there's this wave of bands that comes after it that's something that rock critics had talked about when the strokes came about in 2001 and then the white stripes came about and there was this idea of like oh like the new garage rock revolution is going to take over music which it did in the media but it didn't really take it over in terms of record sales like the strokes didn't come close to doing the kind of numbers that lincoln park did for instance for instance you know like this idea that like the strokes killed new metal is just demonstrably untrue. I mean, new metal bands continue to sell big records. So I feel like that narrative was still in play with Arcade Fire, that like, oh, a rock band can save music, like that idea that critics talked about. And um, and looking back, it just feel, it, it, it yeah, feels like Yeah, I mean, because where, where else could it go? I mean, yeah. like, the, like Arcade Fire wins a Grammy and there's nowhere to go for them. And as far as like, in, like, they they didn't really represent anything new, I guess, in the same way that Nirvana did. Like Nirvana was a band with like, in a lot of ways, very punk ideals, very um, countercultural. Like they had, they were very countercultural. Whereas like Arcade Fire was like kind of centrist from the beginning. You know they 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 just so happened to be on Merge Records for a while. Um, and in some ways, I, I would say that Arcade Fire did really uh, push things forward. But I would say that it, they weren't Nirvana so much as maybe, and you're going to hate me saying this, Pearl Jam, where um, they, a lot of the bands that did <laughs> right. come and come through in the uh, in the next decade and could uh, headline Coachella, you know, like I don't like Mumford and Sons isn't exactly the same thing, but you know, like maybe like Lumineers or just the the bands that like could. I guess be top liners on Coachella like were modeled after Arcade Fire in some way in the sense that they were like also really earnest like acoustic guitars and maybe some like accordion or whatever. But um, I I think in some ways that it it sort of set the stage for that. But, um, you know, there's really nothing revolutionary about that band itself that like wanted to change the way things work. Um, as opposed to Nirvana and by, and and also like by 2011, I mean, how could any one person change, you know, the entire industry when so much of it is being decentralized? I think like the reason Arcade Fire could win a Grammy for album of the year, not alternative album of the year in 2010 or 11 is because it just like the landscape itself was just so depressed. It was like, um, you know, the years were like Michael Jordan wasn't in the league and so you know someone else could someone else could win the championship which (laughs) makes it you know that's still a major accomplishment but it's not it's it's not you have to consider context for it like well i just want to say can i just say i love that analogy because mm -hmm. that means that arcade fire is like the houston rockets of uh of indie rock because you know <laughs> Houston Rockets were able to win titles because Michael Jordan wasn't around and uh the Butler brothers are, are from Houston there, and this there record is about the Houston suburbs so it all comes around I mean yeah I, I want to go back to what you were saying about like comparing Arcade Fire to Nirvana because I don't think it's necessarily like the fault of Arcade Fire that 
the rock revolution didn't happen or the indie revolution didn't happen mm-hmm. because of the suburbs. I think you're right in that it had just more to do with the culture at the time. Like the world had changed. Mm-hmm. And like this, and, and, and I think that narrative that we were talking about, that Nirvana narrative, that like outsider band that takes over the culture, it was already flawed in 2001. You know, like we, like the media really wanted the Strokes to be that band. And even now, even now people talk about like the Strokes killing new metal like that's something i have seen people write and that's not true like there were huge new metal bands even during the reign of like all those uh you know the strokes and white stripes and the hives and all that and like i mean new metal kind of ran out of gas on its own a little bit um although corn is still around and you know making successful records. Well, if you but... look at Nirvana back then too, it's like, you know, Metallica still did big numbers. Guns N' Roses did big numbers. Um, and that still continued for a while. So, I mean, it, it it just killed off like, you know, Warrant or, you know, Whitesnake or whatever. But in the same way, like, you know, after the strokes happened, like there was still like Linkin Park was still like a much, much bigger band. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's just, I guess the lesson here is just there's always a sense of like a band that comes along and restores order, but it's an order that, you know, doesn't really hold as much weight now. And, you know, 2020 or it didn't hold as much in 2011 so much as like 2020, you know, like right. no one's waiting around for like a rock band to save them. Right. Exactly. And again, I feel like arcade fire might've been like the last band where people could credibly make that case. Cause I, you don't really hear that narrative anymore. No one in 2020 is writing about some up and coming band in the context of them, you know, bringing indie rock well, back to a certain level. You must of not, I think it's accepted. You must that, not read a lot of British magazines then because like, well, <laughs> it's always like, yeah, I mean, idols is changing rock music or like shame, right, right. shame is bringing rock back, you know? <laughs> Right, exactly. Yeah, that's a that's a whole other animal. But yeah, 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 yeah. The British press, God love them. They continue to wave the flag. I'm I'm happy for that. Um, getting back to the suburbs, you know, another thing that struck me when I was listening to it is that the themes of the record are very again unique to an indie culture that I think really started to change after this record came out. Like I think of a song like ready to start, which has one of the most quotable lines from this record, which is, uh, uh was a businessman. Uh, oh, take the my lyrics blood. on like that the, song are so dumb, but like, it like, makes me want to run through like, a wall, you know? Right. Right. It's like, like, yeah. Like the kids in art school said they would, it's about like, you know, business interests, you know, taking your soul, this idea of selling out, you know, which is something again, we don't really talk any, about anymore that, that idea has been put to bed in a lot of ways. I also think of the song suburban war, mm-hmm. which is, one of my favorite songs on the record and it's something that I really connected to when I heard the record because what that song is talking about is tribalism mm. and how music defines the different tribes that exist in youth culture or at least it did when when Butler was a kid and when I was a kid and, and maybe that was true for you too Ian mm. but that's, a, that's another thing that I feel like like that tribalism of music that idea like you're a punk you know you're a metalhead, you know you're into like you know preppy pop music um, that also seems like an idea that was just about to die, like after this record came out, like with the dawning of like the streaming age, essentially, you know, we don't really talk about tribalism in that way anymore. Um, yeah, I think there's just so many little things about this record that like speak to me and, and speak to you because I think we come from a similar place yeah. that when Butler does, 
But I wonder, like, a kid who hears this record now, like that proverbial 18-year-old who's heard about the suburbs, maybe they're listening to this podcast and they've never listened to the suburbs before, and now they're going to give it a listen. I did there's so many things on this record that I just wonder, like, is this going to sound dated to someone who, like, didn't grow up well, in the 90s? You know, I, I, I really believe that might be the case. It might, but I mean, you we always say the same things about, like, I don't know, like Pink Floyd or the Sex Pistols or what have you. And, um, you know, tribalism may not look exactly the same as it did, you know, when, when we were teenagers where it, it was so overt. But uh, I think the, the feelings of, you know, alienation and, you know, feeling a part of and, you know, there, there are tribe there, there are tribes, but it's not as you know, clear cut as like punk or, uh, you know, indie or pop music or whatever. Like tribes exist. It's just that I don't really know what they are. But someone's always like someone who's 18 can probably relate to, um, you know, in a song like Ready to Start, like I think in some ways, like you know, when Butler's kind of mocking the idea, it's like, I, I think he's being kind of sarcastic in those lyrics. Um, right. But nonetheless, oh, yeah, definitely. But nonetheless, it's like, you know, someone in high school about thinking about their integration into culture, like the integration into capitalism or like taking a certain kind of job or I think the themes are so strong that um, anyone who's like 18 just like kind of feels this uh, a me again, like, Ready to Star is a very me against the world sort of song. And I think that any like that is a very, very teenage feeling. So people can relate to it. It won't have the same cultural capital that it once did. But I mean, and I, I, I don't think it will some like some of the cultural context will be dated. But I think the th- underlying themes, because like people are going to live in the suburbs uh, and feel like there's always something interesting happening, just like just that a reach. Um, and you know, the feeling of wanting to get out of the suburbs and not being sure of themselves and like social cliques. I mean, that stuff will always exist. And I think that people will be drawn to that without knowing, you know, what it was like to be a band on Merge Records in 2010, you know? <laughs> right. I mean, I think another big piece of context with this record, as we look back on it 10 years later, is the changes in arcade fires trajectory before and after this record because obviously i think we can separate the different eras of arcade fire kind of like on either side of the suburbs you have like the first two records that feel very much of a piece um and are so aughts like there's they were i mean i was watching clips of of uh, arcade fires performance from snl in 2007 uh, when they played Intervention and like when Butler smashed the guitar yeah. on on television, and like they were introduced by Dwight from The Office, uh. <laughs> and, and it's like you know we I, I was trying to think of like how many different aughts era signifiers can we have in this performance. Um, so you have those records, and then you have the records that came after the Suburbs. You have Reflector, which came out in 2013, and you have Everything Now, which came out in 2017, and um, you know. I know from personal experience that there are Arcade Fire fans that love everything now. And, and I think there's even more people that love Reflector. I mean, for me, those two records, like the post-Suburbs output, is extremely flawed. Like Reflector, I, will, I, I, I think is sort of like an interesting misfire. There's some really good songs on there and some really terrible songs. Whereas everything now, I think, is like an all-out turkey. I mean, that record is terrible, I think. Um, but to me, like, I feel like 
the connecting thread with those post suburbs records is Arcade Fire trying to figure out like who are we now? Like how are we going to be a band on this level? You know, being an arena rock band in an era where there's like not a ton of arena rock bands anymore. You know, the things that we were good at are now maybe considered passe. Maybe we're a little tired of doing that, but this other thing that we want to do, we're not totally good at that either. Mm-hmm. I, I, I just feel like confusion is what defines like those post-suburbs records. I think that they kind of knew exactly who they wanted to be, which was like Octung Baby era U2, um, you know, Zoo <laughs> right. TV era U2. And um, I, they're just so obviously going off that playbook, which in some ways is a strength because um, no one else is really trying to do that you know, as overtly, like maybe some bands are operating on a similar level of cultural import, but they're not doing like, Hey, we're going to make our, you know, electronic dance album. And then we're going to get into our irony phase. Um, and I think what they're, you know, what they're rec- And I think when we look back on like arcade fire, they were never really like, they were very popular, but I don't know if they were like trendy, you know, I don't think they were ever like, I think there was always something kind of uncool about them to the same extent that like U2 was just always hated by the punks, man. Like people like just kind of really bristled at their ambition. And uh, I think Arcade Fire was always a band that just really wanted it more than others. And um, but, you know, in the in the 2010s, it's like they they wanted to be an arena rock band, but like kind of. It, it, I think we're just looking at two records that go against a lot of their strengths, which, you know, are earnestness, like a lack of subtlety and just these big emotional, like cathartic outpourings. And this stuff isn't really translatable to like making, you know, what they want to do as far as like dance music or um, it just kind of looked silly. Um, and, you know, they're always kind of silly, but like they tried to be kind of cool which they're not. And then they tried to be kind of ironic on everything now, which they're not. And I think that's where the strain starts to happen. Now, don't get me wrong. I mean, like everything now is, I heard the title track on like the radio in San Diego, which, you know, that's alongside like, you know, Imagine Dragons or Theory of a Dead Man or whatever. And like, I didn't hear any Arcade Fire songs on the radio prior to that. So in some ways it was a success um, in getting them to a certain level, but you know, I don't think they really sustain that. Um, yeah. I mean, it's interesting thinking about them in 2020 because, you know, you made a point earlier about talking about bands like the Lumineers and, uh, of monsters and men, or like even like Edward Sharp in, in the magnetic zeros. If anyone remembers Edward Sharp out there. I lived in LA. Um, of course I remember Edward Sharp in the magnetic <laughs> zeros. <laughs> I mean, you know, again, these very bombastic messianic anthemic, indie bands where you had, you know, a lot of members, they were wearing old timey clothes. There's like, you know, interesting facial hair going on this sort of collision of like back to the land, almost like a hippie aesthetic. And then like just corporate rock sheen, you know, like this weird juxtaposition, which has proved to be very commercial. Um, I mean, is that the lasting impact of this band? Are there any other signs that this band has been influential on 2020 music? I mean, you are the guru of emo, of emo rock right now. Like, do you feel like emo <laughs> bands coming up now listen to Arcade Fire? Like, draw any inspiration you know, from what they're doing? If you, I, I, I've I've put forth this theory before, but like, Funeral is like basically a 2010 
2011 era emo album. I mean, there's eight guys, there's glockenspiels, there's the guy who can't sing and the female vocalist who can <laughs> sing. One guy's wearing a helmet. They just look super uncool. Um, and I think Funeral definitely does have the, it, it. But even that's become kind of a passe influence in that realm, um, you know, going into 2020. But as far as like Arcade Fire's like impact on the on, on the current scheme of things like i just can't really assess it you know i think they do exist in their own little kind of sphere like where you know they can release a new album and it'll it'll be popular but like are they're more like the strokes now or something like that where they they're clearly like past i don't know i think what would i think what what will happen with them is that their next album will be like probably a u2 type move where they go back to basics like the, all that you can't leave behind and it'll get like, you know, it's like arcade fire back to help us through, you know, the quarantine, like you two saved us, <laughs> like you two saved us for mine 11. Um, but I don't think they'll, they, they just kind of exist in their own bubble now, which is, you know, it's through some fault of their own. Um, but I, yeah, I mean, I mean, the one thing I would say is like, there's always the chance that there's like this group of people that were, you know, between the ages of like 11 and 15, when the suburbs came out and which would mean that they're just starting to make their records now. And maybe we're going to see a wave of like arcade fire boosterism because there's always this thing like where you feel like certain bands are really popular for a while, then they fall out of favor and then they come back because there's younger people that love them when they were kids and then they bring them back. So I'm curious to see if that happens with arcade fire. I don't know if that will happen, but I, I mean, they were a really popular band in the aughts and they were the kind of band that I feel like if you were a certain kind of kid, they were probably your favorite band for at least a couple years. Uh, so I, I'm curious to see if that happens, but yeah, you're right. I mean, I do agree. I, I think the strokes comparison is apt. The strokes being a band that a certain segment of people who were a certain age when that band was really important, they're kind of with the strokes forever. You know, like they're always going to care about the strokes. And I am one of those people, by the way. Like, <laughs> I find the strokes endlessly fascinating. And, you know, Julian Casablancas will put out, you know, his like shitty Leonard Cohen imitation album when he's 70. And I'll be there like, oh, this is like really interesting. Like I'll be I'll be scribbling notes on his <laughs> like mortality album that he makes, you know, 30 years from now. Um, and yeah, I, I, I suspect that Arcade Fire is the same, that there is a generation of people who found this band to be incredibly important and they're always going to be with them. I don't know if they're that band that like transcends generations, like a, like a Radiohead, for instance. I think Radiohead has proven that they had fans that loved them in the 90s and then they put out In Rainbows and in, in the aughts and that was a different generation of people. And then the next decade, they can still headline Coachella and, and, and people gravitate to them. Maybe Arcade Fire are more like the killers. Like, I, I mean, but I don't know. It, it's like, I know there was a discussion about like, you know, what are they, like, where are they like now? Because, you know, they're on a level, I would say below, if you want to look at like 21st century indie rock, I think they're below Vampire Weekend. I think they're below LCD sound system on like the totem pole, which is, you know, kind of, kind of amazing to think about this band that won a Grammy, but like, doesn't have that kind of juice, but I think they just are unlike, you know, vampire weekend and LCD sound system, much, much, much worse at brand management over the past <laughs> decades. So. Well, and I, yeah. And they, 
they haven't had that album that came out that could hook a new generation in in the way that I think Father of the Bride did for Vampire Weekend. I mean, I think they were able to make a record that brought people in. And maybe the next Arcade Fire record will be that. I mean, you know, I, I feel like we've been hard on Arcade Fire in this episode. I will say that they are one of the great live bands of indie rock in the last oh, 20 un- years. unbeatable. And, like, even even everything now, like, I've heard of the Everything Now shows, even if they're playing, like, half-empty arenas. I heard they still bring it. Yeah, I mean, I, I saw the Suburbs tour, um, and they, they I saw them in uh, Chicago. The National was opening. This was, like, High Violet era, so wow. this was, like, a very <laughs> 2010 era show. And uh, they were great. They were, again, like, the... There actually have been like quite a few indie bands from the aughts that were able to make it into arenas. Um, some of them have actually have managed to stay there. Some have not. But I think Arcade Fire, without question, is like the best. Oh, but I mean, they were they were do doing that. that from the start. I mean, you, I, I remember seeing like the funeral shows at like the Variety Playhouse in Atlanta, where it's like seven fifty, like a seven hundred fifty cap room, and it's just like this band, like they can scale for real and. Uh, I mean, some of the reflector stuff didn't come off great live, but I mean, I would still see them like if yeah. they were, you know, if such a thing were possible, you know? Right. Absolutely. And, um, and again with the suburbs, I feel like you and I feel similar, similarly about this, that we still like the suburbs. Like I, when I revisited it for this episode, I still enjoy it. It's probably the, the Arcade Fire record that I would reach for first if I wanted to listen to this band. Um, and I think now when I listen to it, I just look at it as like a fascinating snapshot of that moment in time and that decade that preceded it, the aughts, of yeah. like what indie rock was. And, and it's interesting to compare what where we're at now with indie music to what this record was when it came out in 2010. Yeah. I mean, when I listen to like modern man, I am back at that desk at like eating lunch at <laughs> 1115 in the morning. Cause I'm just like, so sad about like the state of affairs. And I think that's, you know, like, I think a, a, a great thing, like it's a real Testament to how powerful it is as far as like, not only a snapshot of time, but the endurance of it and uh, of its themes. And you know, that it, it is honestly like the first, arcade fire album i will reach for if i want like an arcade fire experience but um yeah i just also think it like i think at back of it is like this is where things started to change like this is why the 2000 like this is why decade list should start like 2001 to 2010 or 2011 to 2020 because it there always seems like the the zero year of a decade closes out the last one as opposed to being the beginning of a new one like this is where this is right. where the two thousands ended, as far as I'm concerned. And it ended uh, with a bang. So congratulations to the odds. And then we started a new decade. So in this part of the episode, we're gonna be doing something called recommendation corner, where Ian and I will talk about something that we're really enjoying at the moment. Could be an album, could be a music documentary, could be a music book, could be a great Twitter follow. Um, I'll go first. You know, I find that lately I've been going back and seeking out albums that came out around March and April because I feel like that was a really crazy time. Obviously, that was when the pandemic was really blowing up 
here in America, and it was really easy to lose track of albums that were coming out because you were worried that any cough that you had was a sign that you were soon going to die. So, like, I found myself not really caring as much about new music at that at that moment. So I've been going back, revisiting some albums, and one record that I've really connected with is It Is What It Is, which is the fourth record by Thundercat. And if you know Thundercat, it's the performing name of a singer, songwriter, and bassist called Stephen Bruner. He's most famous for playing on other people's records, including albums by Flying Lotus and Erica Badu. He was also a major player on Kendrick Lamar's To Pimp a Butterfly. This is his fourth record, and um, when it was reviewed in April, it got pretty good notices, but I feel like it just sort of came and went, even though his third record, which came out in 2017, called Drunk, was a very acclaimed album. Um, but this album, it just really connected with me, I think, in the summertime, because this is like a hazy, funky, like psychedelic R&B funk record. And it falls in line with Thundercat's other records, but this album feels even more sort of disjointed and raw and murky. And it's the kind of record that I feel like if you listen to it once, you're maybe going to miss the point of it. It's not something that has like that one song that is going to latch you in and, 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 and make you want to stick around like the other, like the other Thundercat records do. But I really like the murkiness of this record. And I think over time and over listens, um, it's really hooked me in. Um, I'll even say too, that, uh, if there's any indie jam fans out there, that Thundercat to me should be put into this category because there is something jammy, uh, or jam band. The guy plays like an eight string bass. Of course he's jam band. (laughs) Absolutely. And I, and I've interviewed, uh, Steven in the past and we ended up talking about like Frank Zappa, like for half the time. So he's, he's a Zappa head. So he definitely has that in his DNA. So it definitely has that sort of like muso aspect to it. There's like a lot of weird time signatures, a lot of virtuoso playing, but there's also like a real sort of melancholy soul to it um, and a real sort of idiosyncratic point of view uh, that I really love a lot. So if you're having like a socially distanced barbecue this summer, if you're by yourself and you're maybe drinking too much and feeling a little woozy, put this record on. I think it'll be a great accompaniment to your state of mind. Right, what is so, your recommendation, uh, Ian? July for me, like it, it, it's it's in, it's funny because you know everyone would like the the reputation of San Diego is like oh it's like perfect weather all the time and it's like always seventy eight degrees but like in June and July like it's June gloom but it also kind of carries over to July and I find myself always in July like gravitating more towards dream pop like something that kind of captures this it's bright it's kind of like it's kind of carefree but also there's like this murky overlay to it and you know july is dream pop august is chill wave i can explain this in another hour-long episode if you really want but um but what yeah i always like i look back on like mixes i make for myself that occur in july and there's always like this heavy dream pop uh sort of thing like there's a theme going on with it and the ones that i've discovered lately is uh, you know, I find myself going back to the old Radio Department albums. Um, Radio Department is kind of like a one-man band operating out of uh, Sweden. And every couple of years, you'll get some people saying, that, like, this is the most underappreciated band. Like, this is the most underrated band. And I don't know how much, like, I really agree with that. I think they're properly rated in the sense that they're kind of this cult act that, some people like really, really, really love and like that's their thing. And then other people just haven't heard of. Um, 
But the one that really like, stuck with me, like happened in 2010, like clinging to a scheme, like that was, I think, the big American breakthrough. Um, and, you know, another 10-year-old album. But the ones I've been, I've been looking back to, uh, Lesser Matters, the one that came out in 2003. And um, it's it's raw. It's like more shoegaze. It's more noisy. It's more distorted. But um, it's one of those, it's like a situation where you, there's a band you really like and it's so rare to be able to say like, oh, I haven't listened to this one because you know, everything's like super available and you could just sort of stream at any time. And I'm always excited when there's a band I, you know, generally really like, but I recognize like, oh, I haven't listened to their older stuff yet. And I think what struck me about this particular album, Lesser Matters, is that when I think about like how music's going to progress in quarantine, like, you know, 2020 has been a great year because a lot of stuff's been recorded before quarantine. But I think I'm not trying to like predict there might be like a dream pop sort of bedroom indie sort of a trend. But when I think about like the kind of music that can be made in quarantine by indie rock bands who are a little more noisy, uh, a little more shoegazy, it could, it's probably going to sound like this where it's, it's it, all the distortion happens within the computer and it's still like very quiet vocals and use drum machines rather than drums. So I think every couple of years there's like this uh, dream pop shoegaze, you know, renaissance because there are always going to be like emo or hardcore kids who age out of that stuff. It's like, we listen to shoegaze now. And like, yeah, we're really into Radio Department. I think Radio Department is actually like Joyce Manor's favorite band of all time. So, um, yeah, if you've only heard um, Radio Department from like Heavens on Fire, I would highly recommend going back to the 2003 album Lesser Matters. I think that's really where... Um, you know, they, it, it, it feels a little more special because it's under it's not as exposed as the other one. So that's what I've been into lately. Well, good recommendations from us both. And if you're looking for more music recommendations, sign up for the Indie Mixtape Newsletter. You can go to uprocks.com backslash indie. And I recommend five albums per week and we'll send it directly to your email box. I feel good about our first episode, Ian. I think we are on our way here at IndieCast. I think we are too, man. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, well, everyone, thank you for listening to uh, our first episode, and we will be back next week with more IndieCast. Take care.